Hi, Elizabeth here. Karen and I want to issue a correction ahead of this episode. During our discussion of the shooting in Dayton, Ohio, we have since learned that the shooter's sibling was in fact a transgender man. We apologize for misgendering him. Jordan Kofer, rest in power. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today it's just us. This is our horrible summer episode. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be a yearly occurrence because last July's episode was also a horrible summer episode. <laughs> I don't know if I should apologize because it's not my fault. I mean, in as much as anyone is complicit with, you know, capitalism and heteropatriarchy and creeping fascism and cis-heteropatriarchy and, you know, <laughs> just the imperialism of the United States government. So I suppose it's my fault in that it's the fault of every American or every person living in a Western capitalist country. How are you, Karen? I've been better. I've been worse. Uh, in my personal life, I'm all right. Politically, I am ripping my face off on a daily basis. How are you? Well, if you can hear it in my voice, I'm recovering from a cold. My son uh, brought home a little virus from nursery camp, summer nursery camp, and it kind of knocked he and I and my husband on our butts for uh, about a week. So that was unexpected. Uh, summer's been horrible, but we have been active. Elizabeth, can you tell me something that you may have done this summer? Sure, yes. Um, something I did in, in July was I helped organize a Lights for Liberty vigil. There were over 800 vigils around the world organizing to oppose uh, human concentration camps and end the inhumane treatment of refugees, immigrants, and asylum seekers on the U.S. border. It was a really powerful experience, and I met a lot of people that I continue to be in contact with. Um, this is not an issue I'd ever done a lot of work with. If you listen to the show, you know that I have done activism with regards to abortion access. We fundraise for abortion access every year, and I've been a clinic escort in an abortion clinic, and I've just done generic campaign volunteering, but this is the first time I got involved in the immigration issue. And I met uh, a lot of other organizers uh, in the Queens and Long Island area who are active on this issue. It's something that I hope to continue to be involved in. There has been some controversy at the national level about whether or not the, the people who organize Lights for Liberty should be a nonprofit. They have organized into a 501c4, I believe, which is a nonprofit that can advocate on political issues. I'll leave that up to people who know a little bit more about the issue than myself. That's something I'm not aware of and can't wrap my mind around. Can you give like the most basic pro and con? The most basic pro and con is that most of the organizers of the Lights for Liberty national rallies are white um, American citizens who are not directly impacted by the issue. They encouraged organizers to center people of color and to center immigrants, which I tried to do as much as I could. I had several speakers of color, but also several speakers who were local white and American activists and some people of color who were citizens and, you know, some people who were not citizens. There's a mix of people at my vigil, but there was a big dust up at one of the vigils in Texas. There was actually two vigils that didn't go as, as expected. One of them was being organized by uh, religious groups and they didn't want to make it political, which I don't understand. It is a political issue. That doesn't make any sense to me. This is the theme of the show, the difference between political and partisan and how people don't understand how much of their lives and activism are indeed political. Right. How afraid people are of that word. Yes. And so the organizers gave control of that vigil to the local Reyes group, and it, it changed into a very different event. Then there was another issue at one that was being held at a detention center for immigrants, and it was a very peaceful vigil, as was intended. Some black bloc people showed up and took down the American flag and raised, I believe, the Mexican flag. 
there's a time and a place for that. I mean, you know, I cheered on, I believe, was it Bree Newsom who, who climbed up and took down a Confederate flag? But that was a rally against the Confederate flag. This was not a rally against the American flag. This is a rally for the flag to stand for what we say it stands for. You know, it, Lights for Liberty in its materials had a picture of the Statue of Liberty embracing a small child. To me, the meaning of that is for us to live up to the ideals that we say that we have. So the people switching the flags just created a lot of bad publicity, in my opinion. And the organizers did disavow that that action and say, you know, now that's all people are going to talk about. They're not going to talk about the way people are being treated in inside those detention centers. All in all, I think that people are more activated now than they have been in a long time, not only around immigration, but as you wanted to talk about, about gun control. Yeah. And so we're going to come back to talking about asylum, refugee and immigration stuff. We also do want to talk a bit about gun control. So there have been quite a few mass shootings this month, this week. This year. And this year is an unreasonable amount. And one of the shootings in El Paso, Texas, was particularly related to the issue of immigration and asylum-seeking and uh, refugees where there was a deeply politicized shooter really radicalized online and he posted about it on 8chan which is the website for people who find 4chan too timid and if our listeners don't know what 4chan is congratulations don't google it it's just horrible (laughs) it's a horrible place on the internet I don't know why I think this. This might not actually be true, but I think of 8chan as the place where 4chaners went when they banned child porn. I have no idea if that is, like, the actual reality of it, but that gives you a sense of what they're like, if that's how I remember them. (laughs) I've gotten far off topic. I don't think that you have. I think all of these things are interrelated. I think that the way that people get radicalized on the internet and then carry out violent attacks and murder people in real life, they're related, clearly. Yeah, it was a very difficult thing to talk to my family about. It's a kind of interesting split, I think. The far, far right, the white supremacist right, the anti-Jewish right, right, and weirdly, like, the child porn right, really has created a huge social network online. And I think being a feminist on the internet for a lot of years has given, at least me and you, Elizabeth, a, a front seat to seeing some of that toxicity so that we're both very aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's just really interesting talking to people who aren't aware of it at all. And it's difficult to have these conversations because the idea that this mass shooter posted something like a manifesto to HN is not surprising to me. I don't know. What do you think? I hear a lot of people saying that this was their nightmare and that they've been screaming about the right for 10 years or 15 years or more online. And then one day it's going to come to real life or, you know, just come across the screen and to me as a person who didn't necessarily do any activism or any raising awareness about how young white men in particular are being radicalized online I don't feel like that kind of Cassandra feeling you know that you were making this prophecy no one listened to you but I do have family members that as early as I don't know 2005 I had been talking to about this issue and they were like well you know so what it's just some, some people saying some stuff. People always say terrible things. To see it come to life is, is scary, and I don't get any satisfaction out of saying I told you so. But nor do I feel that same terror or that same, I guess, sense that I could have done anything more to stop it. Karen, I think there are a few um, people online, like, for example, David Futurell, we've talked about him before, who runs the site We Hunted the Mammoth, and he talks about online misogyny. He's been around for quite a while. There's two books on this topic. 
One of them is Kill All Normies by Andrea Nagel. I don't particularly like that book because Andrea Nagel claims that she's a leftist and a feminist. However, the thesis of her book is that teenagers on Tumblr are so egregious in the way that they police the way each other talk that it's enough to drive people to 4chan and the alt-right, and I think that's ridiculous. But if you don't know anything about 4chan, her book might be worth it if you want to understand it better, but I would take it with, you know, a cup of salt. There's another (laughs) book that's just coming out called It Came From Something Awful, which I think puts more of the blame on the right. That's just what I've seen from the reviews. I haven't read it myself. But I think it's it's a similar book that attempts to draw a straight line from 4chan to Donald Trump becoming president without blaming some LGBT kids on Tumblr, which is ridiculous. Like, how can you blame children for this? Those are some sources. And obviously, you know, Troll Nation by Amanda Marcotte, which is kind of the antithesis of Andrew Nagel's book, which is about how the right has always been about trolling the libs. It's just that 4chan is the way that younger Gen Xers and older millennials do it. The cruelty is the point. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things all tie together. There's more national rhetoric around immigration and people from other countries, particularly non-white people from predominantly non-white countries. And the shooting in El Paso was particularly targeted. That's not where the shooter lived. It was an area of El Paso The Walmart, I think it was in particular, that it was in, was one that often Mexican residents will cross the border to shop at that Walmart and go back to Mexico. So it was particularly chosen for its demographic makeup, and explicitly so. They really can't be teased apart as far as topics go. Then we have the shooting in Dayton, Ohio, not... Toledo, Ohio, as you may have heard from the president. Yikes. And less is known about that one. It seemed to be kind of a a misogynistic thing, from what I understand. The guy had left politics, but he seemed kind of like an Antifa incel, if anything. I have read so many weird things about this guy, that he was in, like, a grindcore band that was, like, horribly misogynistic. Right, and and Karen, I gotta ask you a question. As someone in the outer boroughs of New York City. Is it surprising to you that a white man with lefty politics is a misogynist? It's funny you ask that. Absolutely not surprising. (laughs) Also, as somebody who is aware of Comptown, as somebody who is aware of... Oh, what's that lefty uh, podcast that everyone... Chapo Trap House? Chapo Trap House, yes. All the shitty lefty men listen to. Mm-hmm. And some women. Mm-hmm. Some of my friends who listen to the show also listen to Chapo, and uh, I'm sorry, but... I'm judging you. Sorry about it. <laughs> Karen's judging you. <laughs> I'm asking you nicely to listen to better shows. <laughs> this is a call in. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, Just a brief shout out as we're on this topic, but our friends at Two Broads Talking Politics got listed as one of the top... 15 or 20 uh, political podcasts to listen to this season. Hell yeah. So congratulations. So if you're looking to step up your podcast game. Yeah, switch out Chapo for two broads talking politics. Agreed. But yeah, so, hmm, angry white men with guns. Right. It's it's not surprising to me that there's a leftist guy with misogynist politics. I mean, to me, the, the first people that he murdered were his sister and his sister's boyfriend. And anyone who's read incel writings is not surprised that incels hate their mothers and sisters as much as they hate other women. It's something they frequently talk about. Incels will frequently just switch back and forth without pausing to how much they hate those girls at the mall who won't sleep with them to how much they hate their mom or their sister. It's extremely disturbing. It's distressing. But I've read enough of those to not be surprised. Is this guy a self-identified incel? Do we know? I don't think so. It's not clear. His misogyny is clear from the band that he was in, the things that he said. He kept a list of people to rape from the time he was in high school. Right. And he had like a hit list around Columbine. It's interesting growing up after Columbine 
you know, I think a lot of people have talked about online how little we've done since then to control guns. And so... But it's been 20 years. It's, I'm a little older than you, Karen. I was a junior in high school when Columbine happened. It's So it's been my entire adult life. It happened when I was 16. I'm 36 now. So I've always known school shootings to be a thing that happens in this country. And when it did happen, it was very scary. But it was treated like a singular event, like an aberration. It was a national tragedy. All of these are national tragedies. But then it just kept happening. It kept happening over and over again. You know, and there's students now, young children, and I, I fully expect that when my son starts school, there'll be active shooter drills in his elementary school. I was at least a young adult, you know, I mean, at 16, in some ways, you're still a kid, but in some in some ways, you're starting to grow up. And we had a series of bomb threats at my school after, after Columbine, and so there was a lot of drills and a lot of evacuations. Like copycats. Yes, there wasn't actually any violence, but I missed a lot of classes. Uh, that year and the next year because of that. And I at least had some understanding of, of something, but there there are children who are very, very young. We're putting a responsibility on them to prepare for something like this. And it's terrifying. It's terror. And I want to talk a little bit about the national conversation around how to prevent these things. So our president talked about mental health and wellness. And it's ironic, and I'm going to be partisan here, to hear a Republican say that we need more mental health resources while simultaneously cutting mental health resources and all healthcare resources. So that's a little bit ironic, but it won't impact mass shootings. So we have very little to work off of, but forensic psychologists have worked on mass shooters and what their commonalities are. And there is not a consistent mental illness profile, so no discernible DSM diagnosis or diagnoses that we know to contribute to mass shootings. So if somebody doesn't have a mental health diagnosis, they don't need mental health care. So what are some of the other ways that you might have heard to prevent these mass shootings? It's very frustrating to me and it's enraging because even when people try to help, there's nothing they can do. I think Elliot Rogers' father called the police and tried to get them to take his son's guns away. I think they did and then they gave them back to him and then he still went on a shooting spree. So even if there's a family member or I suppose our therapist mandated reporters, if someone says to a therapist, I'm going to do a murder, can they call the cops? At the stage that I'm in, I wouldn't directly call the police. I'd talk to my supervisor and have kind of consultation on that. But yes, if if one of my patients had means and a plan to cause harm to themselves or others, I would have to report it legally. But it doesn't seem like that the authorities have anything to do it doesn't seem that they can stop it, at least in the state of California. I mean, every state has different laws. That's something that we talked about. But uh, Another thing that came up was video games. And there's no link between video games and gun violence that's been shown. I feel like there's more gun violence in movies than even video games. But no one said movies, which I think is interesting. No one's been like, ban John Wick 3. It's a very gun-heavy movie. They did ban, um, what was it called? The Hunter, The Hunters? I don't know that one. Oh, there's a Sony Universal pick. It's a satire, I think. It actually has an anti-gun message, but the president heard about it and got mad, and he tweeted something, so Sony Pictures decided not to release it. Wow. Okay. Well, great. Won't change gun violence. So what is one thing that we think might change gun violence? So it's not mental health. It's not video games. Could it be the guns? Yes. Yep. (laughs) It seems to be it. So what could be done? The House passed universal background checks and Mr. McConnell will put it on the Senate floor. I met with my congressperson, met with a congressperson about the immigration issue. And they just offhandedly mentioned all of the things that the Democrats have passed that won't go to the floor in the Senate. And universal background checks were one of them. There are other ideas. I think this might be another topic for another show, but I'm concerned 
maybe I'm in a bubble, but I'm concerned with leftist arguments against gun control. I think people who listen to our podcast might be familiar with, well, but the Second Amendment, but my rights, but my freedoms. But I, I know people who are very left-wing, who are also very uh, pro-gun. What would you say to them, Karen? I mean, I don't get it. I don't see a historically informed leftist argument for lax gun control. I feel like the gun laws in this country were specifically, as far as I understand it, which is, I, this is not my area of expertise, but as far as I understand it, gun laws in this country were white slave owners could have them, black slaves could not. And that doesn't feel like my leftist vibe. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what they're saying. They're saying that if we did something banning certain kinds of guns, it would only be enforced against people of color. The way that right now bans on marijuana are more enforced against people of color than on white people. That's true. I, I don't think that that's an argument at the purchasing level or at the ownership level. Regulations on gun companies and gun manufacturers would affect everyone equally. If you don't have the product, no one can have the product. I agree with you. Um, and then they'll turn to, you know, well, tyranny or something like that. But you're not going to stop a tank, even with an assault rifle. If you're a full-blown anarchist, maybe you could drop the gun control laws with the rest of them. But as long as we're in this America, gun control laws make sense to me. So... Another thing that we wanted to talk about, unless there's more to talk about with gun control, it's basically just like fucking pass it already. Right, right. I think we, um, I think we covered the the horrible parts of the summer. I think we're now moving into kind of the interesting parts or the. Wait, is there good news? There's some good news, and there's some interesting news. I think those those were the worst parts of things we wanted to talk about on this episode. So I am super duper excited the new york state passed agenda and so what does gender stand for the gender expression non-discrimination act and so that passed in this year and what that means and that goes into effect now so it passed i believe in february but it's starting to go into effect and so what does that mean On a federal level, your boss can send you an email that says, I'm firing you for being transgender and you would not have a lawsuit. Under Genda, that email is evidence of a crime. So it says that you are protected on the basis of your gender identity or expression. So you can't refuse to hire and employ someone or bar discharge them from employment. You can't discriminate in terms of compensation or privileges of employment, employment agencies must basically use somebody's gender identity when interacting with them. And it's basically unlawful to discriminate against a person because of their gender identity or expression, which is great. And we do not have this nationally, despite what anyone has told you about the trans agenda and how trans people control politics today. I'd like to congratulate all the activists who've been working for many years on this. And thanks, Cynthia Nixon. Thank you, Cynthia Nixon. Special shout out to TILDEF, the Transgender Legal Defense Defense and Education Fund. <laughs> TILDEF. <laughs> this has been something that has been in the State Assembly for a very long time. And I, I believe it's past the State Assembly every year since either 2014 or 2015. But it never came to a vote on the New York State Senate floor because of something called the IDC, which was, thank goodness it no longer exists, but it was a caucus of people who were Democrats who caucused with Republicans to get chairmanships. And so even though there were more Democrats than Republicans in the New York State Senate, the Republicans got to have the State Senate be a leader this is such a wonky, weedy problem that a lot of people didn't understand it or fell asleep when you tried to explain. But it's something that Cynthia Nixon made a part of her campaign when she primaried Andrew Cuomo. And as soon as she started putting the pressure on, it made way for Cuomo to move to the left a little bit 
and also uh, for people to win primary challenges against IDC members. Yes, and so you can check out our episode directly before this one if you are interested in getting involved in local organizing in ways that you can make your state, if you live in a state, because I think we have some international listeners, but if you live in a state in New York or in the United States, Swing Left is working on local politics. And so actually, do you want to know when Genda was first introduced? It was before 2014? It was introduced in 2003. Wow. It first passed the assembly in 2008 and has passed every year in the assembly. I thought it was more than five years, so it was more than ten years it had been passing these. That's astonishing. The lack of progress in New York State because of the uh, the IDC. Well, the IDC came about in 2010, but, but still. It could have passed in 2010 or 11. Yep, so we have protection for however you express your gender in New York State which is pretty nice, uh, really sweet. So, um, and if you're curious about certain kinds of identities, why this doesn't say transgender, uh, it says gender identity and expression, that's a broader umbrella, but we also have an episode on non-binary gender identities that you can listen to. And Elizabeth, is there a question you wanted to ask about? Yes, there was a question I wanted to ask about that. It was a question that I asked previously on our show, um, our episode Non-Binary 101 with uh, Zister Alex Capitan. I asked Alex, I was trying to get into a leftist Facebook group, and one of the gatekeeper questions was, how many genders are there? And I typed in at least three, possibly more. And I got rejected from the group. And I said to Alex, is that answer incorrect? What would be a good answer? And to me, the reason my thinking was, was that there's people who identify as men, people who identify as women, and people who identify as non-binary. And I know there's a lot of different ways people can identify as non-binary, as, as genderqueer or as agender or bigender. But if you kind of think about it, there's different ways people can identify as, as men or women, you know? There's men who identify as more masculine or... Are we allowed to say metrosexual anymore? And there's women who identify more as girly girls or more femme, and women who identify or as butch. tomboys. Or, yeah, or butch. So... To me, it seems like, in my head, we had three big continents of gender, and people might move between them, but so we have at least three, if not more. And Alex said that seemed like an acceptable answer, and maybe the people who ran the group were TERFs or anti-trans in some way, and they were actually looking for me to say two. So I, I took that, and I no longer tried to apply to that Facebook group. However... Our former vice president, Joe Biden, was asked at a rally how many genders are there. And he said at least three. And people are dragging him for it on Twitter. And I said, well, did I make a mistake when I said at least three? And I said at least three to a trans person? Like, uh uh-oh, something wrong with that answer? So my response to that and my kind of internal response at the time, but not being a person of trans experience at the time... um, did not want to give my cis opinion on it, but I teach a class on psychology of gender. And so the way that I conceptualize gender is if you consider gonads and chromosomes broadly as sex, you could say maybe at least three if you lump all intersex people together which would not be a mindful way of doing it. But I think on on the most broad, big tent, appeals to everybody level, you could say about three. But when we talk about gender, we're talking about sociocultural and psychological experiences of masculinity and femininity. And so to me, the answer to that question of how many genders are there are as many as there are people There might be two people with the exact same sense of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be gender fluid, what it means to be demi-girl or demi-boy, what it means to be genderqueer, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But 
ultimately, we all have our own ways of expressing our gender and experiencing our gender. Some people like to wear their hair short, and some of those people are men, and some of those people are women. And it doesn't read as feminine or masculine. And there were times, just recently, uh, there was a tweet about how lipstick (laughs) was uh, intended to create the illusion of sexual arousal in women because their faces become flushed. This is something MREs have been screaming about for years, actually, that if women can complain about men sexually harassing them at work, they should be able to complain about women who dress in a way that they find personally attractive. Because a man coming up to a woman and propositioning her in the workplace or touching her in the workplace in an inappropriate way to them is the same thing as a woman who they find attractive and if they experience arousal in the workplace it's that woman's fault and they're just as harassed as a woman who's being propositioned unwantedly that's the argument has a woman ever been aroused at work (laughs) i'm curious anyway um men are allowed to walk around in suits all the time men are allowed to walk around without their shirts on even if they're ripped Anyway, <laughs> um, but this is also like we're we're being really binary just to take the piss here a bit. But um, yeah, if you asked me how many genders there are, I would say as many as there are people. What do you think about it with that kind of conceptualization? Do you feel like the three maybe more? I, I think if you say at least three, maybe more, it's leaving the door open to that. It might be too regressive, but I, I think it's a way to signal that you're open-minded and you want to you wanna learn more, especially if you say at least three, but more. You're saying, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, there's only two genders, but you're not really quite sure how to, how to word it. I think it's um, a plea to that you're willing to be open-minded. That's what I hear when I hear you say that. So what I hear is like, this is not my area of expertise, Mm -hmm. but this is my best guess. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to drag Joe Biden. I don't know if this is one of them. And also the person who asked... He was like really crabby when he said it. Right. And I don't know (laughs) if the person who was asking the question was asking in bad faith or not. I don't know who that person was. It's strange to me. I can't imagine that question being asked by anyone but a turf, just because it's a spectrum. It's not a set of discrete numbers in my mind. Right. And they could have said something like, what's your position on trans rights? What's your position on non-binary rights? Something like that. Yeah. It's some weird gotcha question. Right. That doesn't have a right answer. Like the question's stupid. Take that, asker. (laughs) (laughs) Take that Facebook group. Your question's dumb. I hope it's not a lightning question at the September presidential debate. Uh, are we going to talk about the debates? Do you have anything <laughs> to say? I think I said it all on Twitter. Yeah, and I don't care to revisit. <laughs> we, check our Twitter at Fem Coffee Pod. Um, we yeah. retweeted uh, all of the tweets from Karen and Elizabeth as I talk about myself in third person. We t- yeah, retweeted, I know. <laughs> retweeted all of our individual tweets on the main uh, account. So if you want to know what we thought about those debates, we will. And um, we'll probably tweet out stuff about the September debates. I'm glad that we're getting a break because I can't, I can't take it. Also, these will be smaller. I hope so. There is an explainer about how it could be bigger. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, and Elon Musk endorsed Andrew Yang. Wow. Shock. I would recommend people watch the Oliver Thorne video about Elon Musk from about a year or two ago if they want to know why we're laughing at him. Hmm? I don't watch his YouTube. I enjoy the bread tube. I know people okay, are saying it's a- explain the term bread tube to me. I'm not familiar. <laughs> okay. What is I, with it? I'm not really into a lot of socialist academic stuff. Like the the most political philosophy I ever read. Like, I read Deborah Stone, which is like a poli-sci 101 kind of thing to read, and I read a little bit of Max Weber, enough to know that it's Weber and not Weber. Weber. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of socialist theory that I haven't read that I don't know a lot about, but I believe there was an article by someone named Kropotkin about socializing bread. So bread kind of became a shorthand for, like, socialist theory. So oh. leftist or socialist YouTube shorthand bread tube or I left see. tube. Right. I see. Um, but there have been some critics saying that, you know, 
right away within I guess a, a less than a year of of those terms kind of coalescing around I don't know three to five creators um there's been pushback both by people who enjoy those channels people who don't watch the channels and by the creators themselves it would kind of be like if someone called you remember the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse no so supposedly the four horsemen of uh, the atheist apocalypse or the four horsemen are uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. Oh, that's aged poorly. Yes, <laughs> it has. And no one like ContraPoints or H Bomber Guy or Oliver Thorne, Lindsay Ellis, other people that I don't watch who are on leftist YouTube, none of them have come out and said, don't use this term because we don't want to be another four horsemen. But that, to me, that's the closest association. Like, what if right after people started using, oh, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, blah, 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 you know, Dawkins and Sam Harris were like, hey, don't use that word. Hey, there's other atheists. Hey, let's not be in a clique here. Let's let's make room for everybody. Or let's let's not pick, you know, three or four white people to represent all of the left. Let's mm. let's not do that. So, yeah, I guess as self-care, I watched a lot of leftist YouTube. So um, if you don't know... Check out ContraPoints and Oliver Thorne and H. Bomber Guy and Lindsay Ellis. Like, I don't necessarily agree with everything everybody says, but there's also this uh, Canadian socialist lady, Mexi. Very interesting. She's further left than I am. I think she's actually a communist. I think that she makes good videos. And then uh, Cat Black has been around for a very long time. I'm a big fan of ContraPoints and Lindsay Ellis. Me too. You can see the production value go up over time as more patrons subscribed on Patreon. So, you know, if you like your media to have high production value, highly recommend patronizing them on Patreon. Cough, cough, wink, wink. Yeah, maybe you should give us some money. <laughs> what? <laughs> this episode is late. Maybe it wouldn't be late if we had money. Mm, we might prioritize it more if only we made money off of this. <laughs> I mean... Or if we broke even, that would be kind of That would be really nice. Right <laughs> so something that I did watch out of morbid curiosity more than, than out of self-care is a documentary. It actually came out late last year called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye uh, by Josh Harris. For those of you who don't know, Josh Harris wrote a book in the late 90s, I think I want to say 1997, when he was about 20 years old, uh, called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it was about how he decided that in his journey to find a wife, he was not going to date anymore. He was only going to engage in courtship. What's courtship? So. According to him. Uh, people of various religions, but including evangelical Christians, don't believe that people should have sex before they get married. And what he was saying was that in addition to a physical virginity, there exists such a thing as emotional virginity. And that if you fall in love or have strong feelings for, or even have an unrequited crush on someone, before you get married, and you have these feelings for someone who is not your spouse, you've cheated on your spouse. You've pre-cheated. Yes. And <laughs> and so the the book, I, I don't I did not read the book. I only saw the movie. But what and do you I, do if you have a crush on somebody as like a kid? You just shouldn't. Don't think about it. Like pray. Like distract yourself. You just pray it away. I suppose. I I don't. I don't. But know. you've already pre-cheated. So so basically, what courtship is this? Is that um supposedly. There is a, a young man and a young lady. It's only straight people, guys. Um, in these churches, these are not the kind of, of LGBT-affirming churches. Sorry. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, it would be very interesting. Hey, if you are, I, I know I know there are LGBT Christians. If you are an LGBT Christian who wants to engage in courtship or who has done a courtship, tell us how it works. Tweet at us. Oh, we, I would love to hear that. That would be fascinating. You are me. welcome to be a future guest. Like everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm a UU and, and we don't necessarily consider ourselves Christians. So that there's like a whole other thing going on there. But anyway... <laughs> So the way that it works is that there's a there's a young man and a young woman. They know each other uh, through uh, Bible study or church or youth group, something like that. And the young man has decided that he's ready to get married. So he needs to find a wife. And a certain particular woman is a woman that he's led to believe uh, through prayer might be his wife. So he prays about it, possibly consents his parents, possibly not, and goes to that young woman's father and says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I want to court your daughter. The father can either say no or I'll ask my daughter. Like, yes, but let me ask her step two. And then if she says yes, 
then they can begin courtship, which is like a pre-engagement. It's, it's like just jumping into a very serious relationship right away. And they can see each other strongly supervised by the girl's parents, sometimes by the guy's parents, usually by the girl's family, or a trusted chaperone, youth pastor, something like that. They're not to be alone together. They are not to hug or kiss, sometimes hold hands, sometimes hug. But n- n- the I- ideal would be to share their first kiss at the altar uh, after they're married, ideally. And so this is something that Josh Harris proposed or said that we should go back to um, instead of... Uh, instead of dating because if you date someone even if you don't have sex with them you might fall in love with them you might care about them and if it doesn't work out then you've given them a piece of your heart and who wants to not have an entire heart how can you have a good marriage if you don't have a heart the whole thing this is something that took off or didn't take off a lot of people what tried to love your pets <laughs> you know that was one of the criticisms that he that he got that that there was a pastor in the movie who said like look I told the young people in my church to stop reading your book because the boys and girls wouldn't talk to each other anymore. The girls wouldn't talk to the boys because they wouldn't want to form a friendship with them. Like, it's forbidden for girls to take the first step here. So they're not even supposed to, like, make it known who they want to court them. So the girls have to be, have to completely ignore boys. Otherwise, it looks like they're trying to get a boy to like them. And the boys feel like they have to ignore girls because if they start talking to a girl and that girl gets a crush on them, then they've caused that girl to sin. And so everyone's just not talking. living an aesthetic lifestyle. Right. And he's saying, this is not how, if you really want young people to get married, this is not a way to create relationships. This is not a way to create healthy young people. So some people tried this. Many people failed. Either it led to a failed marriage or it led to not being able to find someone that was compatible with them that they wanted to marry or not being able to find anybody. There was another guy, another Christian guy who wrote a book that was critical of the courtship movement who said that he knew people, young men in his own youth group who had asked as many as a dozen fathers of girls in their circle, can I court your daughter and been told no over a dozen times. And that's a lot. I feel like I would say to a young person who's trying to find someone to date of, of any gender, you know, it, it is a numbers game. You got to go out there and meet a lot of people. And eventually you'll, you'll find somebody that, that you click with, but 12 is a lot. So Josh Harris made this documentary, even though he had been the pastor of a church, he quit and he went to seminary to like learn how to do what he had been doing for, I guess, a decade or so. And he met people there who couldn't believe it was really him from the famous book that they were forced to read as children. And (laughs) he started to hear criticism from other Christians of, of his book and of the way that the book was implemented. And so he made this movie to talk about that criticism and apologize a little bit. And many of the people who have been harmed by this book um, say that this apology wasn't good enough. And you can read uh, Libby Ann on Pathios talking about this and other people. I'll leave it to them to say whether or not they accept his apology. But I thought it was fascinating. I'm someone who kind of watched this from afar. I grew up Catholic. I didn't have a part in this evangelical stuff, but I was always fascinated by it, sometimes in a not so healthy way. But to see it take this turn, I'm always also always interested in people who make marked shifts in their ideology. And it seems like even since this movie has come out, Josh Harris has extended his apology, not just to people who uh, read the book and failed at courtship, but to the LGBT community as a whole. Because they were told, I guess, that they were unnatural or that they had to live celibate lives forever. So that's how you do gay courtship. Would I recommend this movie? I don't know. If you're interested in this subculture on a sociological level or just to know like what's going on, yes. If you're someone who has been harmed by this, it might make you more mad. But when this whole thing was going on, late 90s, early 2000s, George W. Bush administration, theocracy was more of a threat to our country than fascism was. What evangelicals were thinking and doing was just as important to the direction of our country is say what's going on in 4chan and 8chan today. Yeah, and I think megachurches still have a big in political impact. Oh, definitely. Uh, on elections in particular, and they've managed to kind of religiousize a lot of partisan issues. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I never understood that. You know, I grew up secular Jewish. We did not have these restrictions. Also, just like in Brooklyn, people dated. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think if I had a partner who asked my parents before asking me out, I would be very confused and kind of insulted. Anyway, so what's been going on for you? Oh, I just wanted to mention this. I talked about this on Twitter, but just as it relates to national politics, I consider myself very lucky because I have good health insurance from my employer. Um, in the end of March, I had to have my gallbladder removed, and modern science is pretty great, pretty quick and painless. It bounced back pretty fast. Do you miss it? <laughs> no, no, it was very. It's causing me a lot of pain at the end. Hmm, rude. Yeah, I know. Good riddance to bad gallbladders. Exactly. So I got this weird letter that had three different notices in it. One saying that I owed zero dollars. One saying I owed $600 and one saying that I owed $32,000. Which one was it? I just assumed it was the zero and kept going. Then I got another letter saying that I owed $32,000 and I kind of laughed. And I got a phone call that my health insurance company is going to appeal because the physician's assistant who assisted my surgeon in the operation doesn't take my health insurance. And I agreed to the appeal, but I said, I want someone to explain to me how this happened. I don't understand. Like, I never consented to an out-of-network doctor treating me. No one asked me. It's not in any of the paperwork. No one said anything to my husband who was my healthcare proxy. Like, not, none of this happened. And she just said, well, you know, there was a shortage of physician's assistance. There's a lot going on in the hospital. They had to call someone in. And I just thought, that doesn't make any sense. I said, look, when I got married... I had a contract with a catering hall to pay a certain amount of money. They didn't call me up a month after my wedding and said, you know, the chef we had that day was a substitute and he didn't honor the contract. So you owe us another $32,000. It doesn't make sense. You can't do that after the fact. My health insurance company approved the surgery for a certain amount of money. And then all of a sudden the hospital's turning around saying, you owe us another $32,000. It doesn't make sense to me. So the $32,000 wasn't the cost of the surgery. It was just the cost of that one physician assistant's participation in the surgery. Yes. Yeah. And it was like t less than two hours. Like I was put under at 830 and I was awake by 10. So what the woman from the hospital said was, well, you know, there's more than one person in the operating room with you. There's a physician's assistant and there's nurses and there's other people there. And I knew that. They all introduced themselves to me before the surgery. None of them said they weren't in my insurance. And I said, look, I know there was more people than just my surgeon in the operating room with me. And my health insurance company, of course, knows every single thing that goes on with one of the most common operations in the United States. It's their business to know. So anyway, uh, Medicare for all, uh, we're in 2020, Sanders 2020, anybody who supports Medicare for all 2020. Yes, if we all have the same insurance, it's all the same. We mentioned that we would come back to talking about immigration and seeking asylum. And I have gone to a couple trainings this year, one recently and one a little while back. So the one that I had gone to a while back was the Mount Sinai Human Rights Program training. So what the Mount Sinai Human Rights Program does is pro bono medical mental health evaluations for asylum seekers to help document torture, abuse, and things that might be necessary for somebody who is seeking asylum in the United States. And so one of the things in particular that had upset me during the CNN debates was that CNN kept talking about illegal immigration. So there's some immigration that we consider legal in this country and some that we consider illegal. And one thing that's happening is that there's a lot of instability in Central and South America right now and we have people coming in on the southern border and many of them might meet international standards to be called refugees or asylum seekers and in order to seek asylum in a country you must be on their soil you cannot request asylum from outside a country you have to be in the country to request asylum you're expected to do it at the port of entry so you go to a border patrol agent and say, I am seeking asylum in the United States. 
what I learned about that process actually came in my more recent training with the New Sanctuary Coalition in New York. I highly, highly recommend their trainings. Uh, They are amazing. And I learned so much information about what's going on now and what's been going on since the 94 immigration reform. But basically, you are immediately detained as an asylum seeker doing it the correct and proper way. You immediately go to court after a few days of detention. You are in separated facilities. And so that's where we see the cages. Those are detention centers, potentially for legal asylum seekers, not illegal immigrants. The U.S. is currently attempting to criminalize asylum seeking, which would be, in some people's opinion, in violation of the Geneva Convention, but it does not seem that our current executive body and legislative body have any problem with that. So what the New Sanctuary Coalition does, or at least the training that I went to, was accompaniment. So what volunteers for New Sanctuary Coalition do are accompany people to their court dates. You can be sent to kind of an expedited hearing for deportation. If you have two misdemeanor offenses and it is a civil proceeding, it is not considered a criminal proceeding, the court proceedings for deportation. So it is not required that you have a lawyer. You do not have the right to an attorney for those proceedings because they're not criminal proceedings which means that a lot of people are there alone after experiencing tremendous trauma. The misdemeanors include things you get tickets for, you know, and not being able to pay those tickets might be a second misdemeanor and then you're in court. So it also criminalizes poverty, as so many of our laws do. And so there are a lot of ways that just kind of everyday citizens can make some ground level changes by volunteering their time. And even if it's not national politics or lobbying, if you could give up four hours a a week tops maybe, or every other week even, it means the world to one person whose life is being turned upside down. And people who are deported may have credible fear in their home countries. They may be LGBT in particular, who may face violent discrimination in their home countries. But really, they're people who just want to live and work here. One thing that was really cool about the New Sanctuary Coalition was that they believe that the right to choose where you would like to live is a human right. That seems kind of like an open borders thing. I don't know how any of this works. This is way beyond my level of understanding. All I know is that I'm seeing people suffering and I don't like it and I feel powerless. So these are the ways that I've been kind of educating myself a little bit and trying to make myself available beyond, you know, our abortion access activism. There are just so many things that really need our attention and time and care. And so that's one way that that I'm kind of starting to go down that path. So if you are in New York and you are a medical professional, highly recommend seeking out Mount Sinai Human Rights Program. And if you're in New York and you are just a person who doesn't know what to do, I highly recommend going to a new Sanctuary Coalition training. They have trainings, I think, once a week now, and you can find their calendar online. So yeah, if all that's been going on is demoralizing to you, is it as demoralizing to you as it is to me, I really do want to say there's something you can do on a small level and make a difference. And that's been really cheering me up. What are some other kinds of self-care that somebody could do? Um, I just want to add one more action item, though, before we go into self-care. And thank you for that update on asylum uh, accompaniment training. You were talking about how, um, in general, in international law, when you're seeking asylum, you go to the country you're seeking asylum in and you present yourself and say, I'm seeking asylum. The Trump administration is trying to change that and trying to say that you can't do that anymore if you've come through another country. So the only people who can come into the United States and seek asylum are people who are coming either from Canada or Mexico. 
in that if you are from a different country and you traveled through Mexico or through Canada, generally just through Mexico, so people from Central America, you have to prove that you had a visa or had asylum in Mexico first. And this is a violation of the Geneva Conventions. Most people consider it a violation of international law. What if you come from Russia on a plane to California? Then it's okay. What if you come from Russia on a plane to New York? I, I th- Not okay, because you pass over other countries? <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question. <laughs> this is my really stupid question. No, I think that's a good question. I don't really know. I think it's on the southern border only. So, like, if you came... It's plane, just brown people. Right, yeah. <laughs> you can file a comment on the federal register against this rule. I hope that it'll be struck down on several grounds. Um, they're implementing it before the public comment period is over, which I don't think is legal. Other people have told me it is. It doesn't sound right to me. So I would suggest that you go to the federal register and write a comment explaining why you disagree. If we have anyone in this country who files a lawsuit like the ACLU, like Reyes and so forth, um, every public comment that's filed is going to be another tool that people at the big uh, legal action groups can use against the administration. So I'd recommend doing that as a very, very small action item that's on the, you know, sending an email. And if we have a lawyer who specializes in immigration and asylum law, who is a listener and really wants to talk about the nuances of these issues, uh, get in touch. We would love to interview on it. So some self-care. I would just like to say, I've said this on Twitter, but it's okay to turn off the TV if you can't. Sometimes you feel like you have to bear witness to what's going on. But if you need to turn off the TV or the Twitter machine, do it. I can't react to everything thoughtfully so i don't i've been giving myself permission to if not turn off the tv to not have to comment on everything right there are a lot of things that i find really disturbing it took me a really long time to say anything about mass shootings because i was really deeply disturbed by it on like a a level that i just didn't know what to say and so i gave myself permission to not say anything and just kind of sit with my feelings on it and i want to give you permission to do the same things that i've been spending time on that have nothing to do with politics i've been playing wizards unite which is like pokemon go but for harry potter and that's been getting me more exercise so that's been pretty cool is it like legit harry potter or like harry Potter? no no it is harry potter it's a licensed game um, okay, for for different kinds of nerds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you been watching anything good? You know, I've been rewatching movies with my son, who's going to be three years old soon, and we recently rewatched Pete's Dragon. I've never seen it. I made a funny Facebook post about this. Let me find it. Pete's Dragon, 1977, not 2016. Pete's Dragon, 1977, is truly a film for our times. A dispute about child abuse in a border town comes to a head as tensions mount between the white working class, a lying charlatan, and the civil servants trying to do the right thing. That is one way of talking about what it's about. And I also made a funny tweet about how I had hot takes of it from every age of my life. But basically it was about an orphan boy running away from his abusive adoptive family. He has a best friend who is a dragon who is protecting him. And he gets to a town in Maine. It's a fictional town called Passamaquoddy, but it was named after a real Native American tribe. And the real Passamaquoddy reservation is on the border between the United States and Canada. So if that town existed in the place where the Native Americans own the land, it would be on the border, which I think is very interesting. No one offers to help him cross the border into Canada, but... I thought that would have been an interesting plot point, but it's not. And Helen Reddy is in it, who is the singer who sang I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. She plays the daughter of the lighthouse keeper, who is known as something of an eccentric in the town because her fiancé is lost at sea uh, for over a year, and she's still waiting for him to come back. And she and her father... And this, to me, was shocking, even as a young person. Like, for a children's movie, the level of drinking and drunkenness in this movie is ridiculous. Like, Mickey Rooney is her drunk father. And there's, like, a scene in the bar where, like, they're dancing on the bar, but it's, like, about the dragon. It's not something you'd see in kids' movies today. It's very different. Um, if you are sensitive to having your kids see people drink, don't watch this movie with them. Everybody thinks the dragon's fake, but the dragon's real. And the dragon helps him escape his abusive family and his abusive adoptive mother is played by Shelley Winters and there's a whole discourse we could have there about how poor white people are portrayed in movies 
So there are some things about this movie, in addition to the drunkenness, that are kind of hashtag problematic. But the things as an adult that I saw in the movie are different than the things that I saw as a kid or, or even as a teenager's rewatch was, was just, like, the seriousness of, like, child abuse and just, like, what makes a family is, is, is people who love each other. And it's very different than the things that my, my son took away. There's, like, a subplot about a snake oil salesman quack doctor who tries to steal a dragon. And whenever somebody talked about patent medicines, I just always knew what that was because of Pete's dragon. As a kid, I thought that the quack doctor was kind of creepy, but as an adult, I find him very funny. So that was interesting to me, like the way that I look at people trying to sell me crap that I know is bad and is fake. I think it's interesting any kind of media that I really liked as a kid, revisiting it as an adult, and now revisiting it as an adult plus watching it with my child, the ways that I perceive the media, to me, that's a fascinating change. Like, I've been rewatching a lot of 90s sci-fi that I loved as a teen, but the, my son's not old enough for that stuff yet. The other movie that we watched was the 1951 Alice in Wonderland cartoon. He was fascinated by that. That was my brother's favorite movie when he was three, so that's where I got the idea from. But that came out in, like, 1951, which is, like, way before my time, so um, that's, like, a third-generation movie, really. I think that's an interesting project. Like, pick a movie, your favorite movie as a child or as a teen, and rewatch it if it's not something that would be too upsetting to you. I've rewatched The NeverEnding Story as an adult, and it, there, there are some things that are hard for kids to deal with. There were some really, like, sad moments. If you haven't seen it, I'll leave you without spoilers. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's what I found myself thinking about while you were talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, something I've been watching that's good, just, like, brain-dead stuff for when you just need to decompress is a show called uh, Blown Away on Netflix. It's a glass blowing competition that feels kind of like Great British Bake Off. It's delightful to watch, or at least the first episode, which I've seen. It is a serious glass blowing show. They make like beautiful glass art and the craftsmanship is like incredible. The craft work is incredible. <laughs> and so that one's good. I tried to watch Skin Wars and could not get into it. <laughs> uh, that's a body painting show. Not my jam. Even the RuPaul hosts it, who is a problematic fave of mine. And something else I've been watching on YouTube that's not a bread tube, Technology Connections. It's if you are nerdy like me, you will love this show. Um, I, so I took an electrical engineering class in undergrad for funsies, which I had to like get special permission for because there was a really fantastic engineering program at my school. And so if like weird electronic stuff and like just kind of like the, the inner workings of kind of analog or digital electronics is fascinating and the inner parts of it are really cool to you and like wiring and stuff highly recommend it it's hosted by like a delightful seemingly unproblematic host so you don't have to be like that onion article about taking a break from being a feminist for a while to consume some media (laughs) karen are you watching the show to learn how to build a sex bot no i don't feel like there's a lot of sex bot information on there but maybe one day i will go on sabbatical <laughs> as a tenured professor and build the sex bot of everyone's dreams. Hit me up, Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then what else is there? So I saw the other night live, I saw Hannah Gadsby's new stand-up routine or whatever you want to call it, uh, show, performance art, comedy, stand-up. I think it kind of encompasses all of those and like expands them. But um, it was so good. And I think it was one of the nights, not my night, is being recorded for Netflix. So I had to put my phone in a little lock bag that ended up stabbing me at the end after they opened up the lock. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's like a little pin that is like stuck magnetically. And after they open it, but before you put it in the little hamper, you have to keep holding it. And I put it under my arm and like stab myself, but not enough to break skin. I'm just being a whiny baby. But anyway, um, it was really good. When it comes out, I highly recommend watching it. It is not the same emotional roller coaster as Nanette, 
It is definitely much more easy watching. Don't need a process session afterwards. I just listened to the only Maria Bamford album that I'd never listened to before, which is 20%, but I think it's from like 2015. So if you need more comedy, I'd recommend Maria Bamford. Yeah. So definitely if you're listening to this, let us know what you're doing to take care of yourself during this fresh, horrible summer. Yes. Tweet at us at FemCoffeePod and tell us what your uh, self-care is. And, you know, a lot of people have this idea that self-care is about bubble baths. And for some people it can be, but for me it's, you know, going to the dermatologist and making sure I go to the dentist and stuff like that, flossing, you know, stuff that might not be the most pleasant thing to do, but I know it's going to make me healthy in the long term. Yeah, I'm a big fan of taking care of things on my to-do list that I've been afraid of as self-care. And I'm a big fan of, like, I got, like some widely available store brand oatmeal bath and I'm I'm saving that for when I need it. So I am a big bath person. That is my self-care. <laughs> bath plus self-care, I think. Yes, yeah. There's more to self self-care than baths. <laughs> um, one of many so things. Elizabeth. Yes. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie. And I'm on Twitter at uh Karen. So uh, we will see you in the fall. And uh, as we said last year, have a great, horrible summer. In the late summer. September is still summer. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think late summer is one of the best seasons. At least in New York, I feel like July is always the hottest month. And then it's a little bit cooler. July was a nightmare. (laughs) You are not wrong this year, for sure. Enjoy. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.